Good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, it's good to be with you in this Lord's Day, at least um, in preaching a sermon uh, via video, um, which is the best we have, unfortunately, for now. But I want to remind you that tonight at uh, 7 p.m. we have a Zoom for our Sunday evening service together. So if you'll tune in, you should get that email around noon today. Um, with that said, uh, let's continue in our study in the book of Hebrews. If you will, look with me at Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. So Hebrews chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 6 through 13. Hebrews 8, starting in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he, find fault, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider together the new covenant cut by Christ, really in his own death and shedding of blood, that as we think about what the author to the Hebrews sang about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, as we consider these great realities of the way you've worked in the history of redemption to save your people through various covenants culminating in the New Covenant with the same essential promise running through them all, that you will be our God and we will be your people, that you will dwell with us and we with you. We pray, Father, that as we consider these great realities, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He superintended this not only for the first generation of Christians who heard this, but he superintended this letter for every Christian, for all the churches in every era. May we hear what he's saying. May we look to Christ and trust him and the new covenant that he has cut. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you will, look with me. Just to begin, we're just going to jump right into the text. Look with me at uh, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry, that's a priestly ministry, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So his, his priestly ministry is 
far better or far superior to the old priestly ministry, the Levitical priestly ministry, inasmuch as the covenant he mediates is better than their covenant. They were under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That's what their priesthood was. If you look back at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11, now perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law. That language, received the law, is the same language that we have here in Rome, excuse me, Hebrews 8, 6, where it says the new covenant was enacted. It's really in connection with the Levitical priesthood, that old covenant was enacted. And in connection with Christ's priesthood, this new covenant is enacted. He mediates a better covenant. He's the surety of a better covenant since it is enacted on better promises. See, the new covenant was enacted when Christ came and cut it at the cross. It was cut in the blood of Christ. The old covenant was also enacted in Hebrews excuse me, in Exodus chapter 24. The old covenant was enacted. The old covenant had a priesthood, the Levitical priests. The new covenant has a priesthood, uh, Christ, the Melchizedekian priest. The new covenant has begun, we're told in verse 6. It's begun. And we're told that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Now, how is the new covenant better than the old covenant? Well, look what it says at the end of verse 6. He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The new covenant is enacted on better promises than the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It has better promises. But how are the new covenant promises better? That's really a question that we want to ask. How are the new covenant promises better than the old covenant promises? Um, if I was just going to give you a shorthand for it, um, sort of the answer in advance, I'll break it down more than this, but, but maybe you should walk away just with this. The new covenant is better in as much as Christ is better. Jesus is better than Moses or the Levitical priests. That's the supreme way in which it's better, but, but I want to look more specifically at that in two points, two main points uh, with some subpoints. Here, here's the first main point. A new covenant, the new covenant promises are not better as to the substance of them. Now, now, that might shock you. I just said that the new covenant is better because the promises are better. And my first point is going to be that the new covenant promises are not better as to the substance of them. My second main point is this. The new covenant promises are better as to the form of them. So as to substance, the promises are not better. As to form, <coughs> they are better. What does that mean? Let's look at the first point. The new covenant promises are not better as to the substance of them. This was the whole purpose really of my sermon last week. I argue that the substance of every covenant, every covenant of God after the fall of Adam is gracious. They were all promissory covenants. God made promises that God would keep. God promised to bless us, to dwell with us, to be our God and for us to be his people. That's why Paul called these Old Testament covenants in Ephesians 2, he calls them covenants, that's a plural, covenants, covenants of promise. All the Old Covenants are covenants, or Old Testament covenants, are covenants of promise. But so you don't have to take my word for it, I, I want to show you that all these new covenant promises listed here in Hebrews 8, 10 through 12 were being given 
in their essence, in substance, to Old Testament saints. They're being given to them, if you will, in an inferior way, in a lesser way, but the substance them, itself is the same. So look at Hebrews 8 and drop down to verse 10. Hebrews 8, drop down to verse 10. Let's look at the, the better promises in the new covenant. <clears throat> Hebrews 8 and verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to the first thing he says. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's speaking to regeneration, being born again, conversion, turning from your old life to Christ, renovation, being, being made new in some way. And I will be their God. Look what he goes on to say, verse 10. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's speaking to adoption. You're adopted as his sons. You belong to him and, and he belongs to you. You're, you're to him as a father is to a son, or in your case, you are a son to him as he is the father. And they shall not teach. Look at verse, keep on verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Um, now this is speaking here in prophetic idiom from the least of them to the greatest that Jeremiah uses frequently, but he's focused here on revelation and illumination of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will illumine you, reveal the truth to you. Not only prophets, priests, and kings, or some folks, but everyone in the new covenant. For I will be merciful, look, it goes on in verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, <clears throat> and I will remember their sins no more. So mercy, covenantal mercy, covenantal forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, the wiping away of the debt. Uh, if you sum up everything that's just been said in these promises in the new covenant, this is all speaking of regeneration, being born again, made spiritually alive, conversion, turning from being opposed to the Lord to trusting the Lord, renovation, uh, being made new, being made wise instead of being a fool who says in his heart there is no God, <coughs> fearing, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> fearing and delighting in the Lord and his law, all these things are there. Old Testament saints, here's what I'm contending, Old Testament saints were born again of the Holy Spirit. They were made new. They were converted. They were enlightened. They were made wise. They feared the Lord. They found their hearts, if you will, delighting in God and his law by the working of the Holy Spirit. Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Just keep your hand in Hebrews 8 and look over at Psalm 19. <clears throat> we'll look at just a few psalms here to see these things going um, through the life of really of old covenant saints. The, the psalms are um, here in Psalm 19, the Psalm of David. He's, he's a king under the old Mosaic covenant. And listen to how he talks about the life of, of those in this, in this era, in this covenant. Verse 7, the law... Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, this is the word of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. It gives life to the dead soul. It converts. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It takes those who are simple, who don't know the Lord, and makes them wise so that they know the Lord and trust him. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They fill the heart with joy in God's law. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They, they have the truth revealed to them. Um, they're illumined. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
They fear the Lord. The, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So the word of God revived the soul, made wise the simple, rejoiced the heart, enlightened the eyes. That's the word of God under the law, under the old covenant. Now look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37. We'll see more of these promises coming out. Psalm 37 and verse 31. The law of God, we'll start in verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. See, the law of God was written in the hearts of people under the Old Covenant. Look at Psalm 40 in verse 8. Psalm 40 in verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. God was writing the law on the hearts of people under the Old Covenant. They had the law of God written on their hearts. Look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 in verses 1 through 3. We talk about mercy and forgiveness and the, the Holy Spirit, etc. Have mercy on me, O God, <clears throat> according to your steadfast love, your covenantal love, according to your abundant mercy. Here's God's mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Look down at verse 7 of Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Look down at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. They had forgiveness of sins, a clean heart, sins that were remembered no more, the gift of the Holy Spirit, mercy from a kind and compassionate Father. Look at Psalm 103, just to see this tied up a bit more. Psalm 103. Another Psalm of David. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 103. Psalm 103 and verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your, renew, your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, <clears throat> so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. See, all of these promises you see in the New Covenant are being administered in the Old Covenant. The substance of them is being administered in the Old Covenant to Old Covenant saints. God promised to be their God 
and for them to be his people in the Old Testament as well. He promised that to Abraham in Genesis 17, to Israel in Exodus 6, to Israel in Leviticus 26, to David's son in 2 Samuel 7, 13-14. He promised that through Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the coming new covenant promise. When he brought them out of Egypt, we're even told he brought them out of Egypt as a father caring for a son. Look back at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and look at verse 7 through 9. For if the first covenant, that first covenant being Moses' covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. So there's something, if you will, that's not, that's not faultless about the Mosaic covenant, and the people are certainly faulty. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day, now catch this language, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The Lord took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt. It's talking about the Exodus event, the redemption from Egypt, from slavery under Pharaoh. He took them by the hand like a father takes his small child by the hand, out of slavery and redeemed them and loved them and cared for them and covenanted with them and they continually violated the covenant but the substance of the covenant was there the same substance we see in the new covenant is there god does not change he is immutable and the way he saves us has not changed so then if that's all true then how are the new covenant promises better than the old covenant promises? Because we're told in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 that Christ's covenant is a better covenant that he mediates or he's the surety of since it's enacted on better promises. But if we're told that the promises are better and yet it seems the promises are the same in substance, how, in what way are the promises better? That leads to my second major point. The new covenant promises are better as to the form of them. They are not better as to the substance of them, the essence of them, what's being promised, the stuff of them, if you will, but they are better as to the form of them. Okay, they're better as to form, but, but what do you mean they're better as to the form of them might be something you ask. What, what does that mean? By form, you might think of the shape that the new covenant takes. You have some substance, and it takes a variety of, of forms. In this case, you have uh, a covenant of promise, really one covenant of grace, that is taking different administrative forms. By way of a rough example, think of having, um, think, think of the United States. We have a constitution with different uh, presidential administrations. It's the same essential um, rule of law, the constitution, with different formal administrations and some administrations are in fact better than others in this case uh, with the new covenant you have one essential promise one essential promise god will dwell with us he will be our god and we will be his people we will be able to draw near to him this promise takes shape or takes administrative form in different historical covenants. God's gracious promises, God graciously promises his people um, the same 
substance all the time. It's always the same. Though the bounties of his grace, he's promising them his grace in his son, though the bounties of his grace may be poured out in greater abundance in different covenant administrations or eras or economies or dispensations or whatever word you please there. The point is, today we're looking at two historical covenants, two historical economies, two historical administrations that are being contrasted. The old Mosaic covenant and the new covenant in Christ. So how is the new covenant as a formal administration better than the old covenant as a formal administration? They're both administering the same covenanted grace of God. But how is one being administering that better than the other one is? Well, I want to provide four answers to that question. Four answers. Here's the first one. First answer to that question. The new covenant is better as the fulfillment is better than the promise. The new covenant is better as the fulfillment is better than the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. Thus, the revelation of God's gracious promises are also more full and clear than they were. The Old Testament partially revealed these gospel mysteries in types and shadows through prophets, priests, kings, laws, ceremonies, tabernacle, and sacrifices. But Jesus is the fulfillment. Look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern, the type, that was shown you on the mountain. So they, being the old covenant priests and their sacrifice, sacrifices serve as a shadow, a copy. The tabernacle serves a shadow or a copy of what Moses was shown on the mountain, which we have the fulfillment of, who is the Christ. They're picturing him in some way. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into a tabernacle we built, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, those things were copies. They weren't the substance. Um, the substance is Christ in the heaven, heavenlies. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1 of Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow, the law is a way of speaking of the Mosaic Covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come in the new covenant in Christ, instead of the true form of those realities, which the new covenant has in Christ, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, have once, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had typological sacrifices that could never put away sin, could never atone for sin. Christ's sacrifice of himself atoned for all sin um, of his people. He atoned for, in one sacrifice, all of our sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Listen, the point is that Christ is the revelation of God's gospel and the redeemer of God's people. All the old covenant function was in that sense, these types and shadows, was to point you to Christ. Yes, they administered the grace of Christ, but that grace that they administered it in and through types and shadows, the grace of Christ was accomplished in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection of Christ and applied to them through types and shadows. But Christ is the substance of all those promises. He is the full revelation of God. Long ago, at many times in many ways, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God spoke to our fathers and the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, the full and final revelation. God gave us typical and shadowy sacrifices through which and, priest, and a priesthood through which we drew near to God in the tabernacle. But in these last days, Christ has come and fulfilled all that as the true tabernacle, the true sacrifice once for all. And he has ascended into the Holy of Holies. He is the substance of all of those Old Testament promises. He is the fulfillment. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Colossians 2 and verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, verse 17, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is the substance. He is the fulfillment. Those things were pointing forward to him. He was the substance of them. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians, we'll go back one more book, or a couple more books. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, Verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for the glory of God or for his glory. Jesus is the yes to all God's promises. So the new covenant is better like in as much as the fulfillment is better than the promise. Think of it like this. It's better like having a loved one come home is better than having a photo of that loved one with you. The new covenant is better like the accomplishment is better than the promise. If you promise to marry someone, the wedding is better than the engagement promise because it's been fulfilled. The promise has been kept. Second, the new covenant is better as the son is better than the servant. So here's the second one. The new covenant is better as the son is better than the servant. That's how its promises are better. Better, it has better promises in as much as the fulfillment is better than the promise. It has better promises in as much as the son is better than the servant. What do I mean? Here's my point. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not only typological, but it was also a temporary servant that governed God's national people, Israel. It was temporary, national, and typological. 
The old covenant was never meant to be permanent. It could never perfect the people of God. It was a covenant the people broke and thus God promised to replace it. Again, look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 once again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What do you mean by the first covenant being faultless? In other words, that first covenant couldn't deliver the substance in um, fulfillment. It was only promissory. It was only temporary. Um, it was a servant. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and look down at, at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law made nothing perfect. His point is, the Mosaic Covenant and its typological um, expression of the covenant of grace was never intended to make anything perfect. It was never intended to bring the fulfillment. It was intended to temporarily govern the people. His point isn't that there was some failing in God's promises or in God's ability to covenant. His point is that if you try to make the Mosaic Covenant do something it cannot do, you're going to find that it's useless to that end. It cannot ultimately um, deliver the fulfillment of the promises. The Mosaic Covenant was only a servant to keep the children in line until the son came, until the heir came. Because it says in verse 8, for he finds fault with them. They broke the Mosaic Covenant. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. They didn't continue in the Mosaic Covenant that was a temporary national typological covenant. They continued to break it. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They languished in their sin. They were exiled. And he promised they would send a new covenant. He would make a new covenant. He would come in his son. His son would be given as the new covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Mo Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful. Now catch this. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. See, Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, but he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 
They serve the same house, the household of God, the people of God. Moses served it as, a, it as a servant in the house, Jesus as the son over the house. And we are his house. The son is the one to whom God decreed, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the end of, ends of the earth your possession. The son is the one to whom the Lord said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Son is the one to whom God gave the oath on the basis of an indestructible life. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Son is the one who is able to perfect his people. The Son is the one who is the surety, the guarantor, the security, the mediator of a better covenant through which we draw near to God. He is better than Moses. His priesthood is better than the old covenant Levitical priests. They were types and shadows of him. They mediated an inferior covenant that could never perfect the people. It was a covenant which the people continually violated. But the Son mediates, is the surety or security of an inviolable covenant precisely because He is the guarantor. He is the surety. And He has met the terms of that covenant. He has fulfilled them all. They, in the old covenant, had the servant Moses. But then the Son came. Moses was a pedagogue. He kept the children in line like slaves until the sun came. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Keep your hand in Hebrews 8 and look at Galatians chapter 4. Paul has just made this argument about the law under Moses being a pedagogue. Um, but I want to look at some of the sort of summation of it, at the end of it. I mean, chapter, Galatians 4 verse 1, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. See, Israel in its childhood, in its immaturity, under the old Mosaic covenant, when they were under the pedagogue, is what we're told in Galatians 3, that child, though he's an heir of everything, he's no different from a slave because he is a child. He's under a pedagogue. He is, verse 2, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. See, those old covenant priesthood, the Old Covenant prophets, the Old Covenant kings were like guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, we were children, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, now hear this, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He was born under the Mosaic Covenant to redeem those who were under the Mosaic Covenant of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the son has come, and now we are full heirs. The church has reached its maturity in the Son. This does not mean that no one was ever an heir before, or that no one was ever saved before. It means they were saved or an heir by Christ in and through types and shadows as they lived under a servant, under guardians, under managers, waiting for the Son to come. But the Son has come. That's what we're being told in Hebrews 8. The Son has come. 
and the son is far better than the servant. Far better than the servant. So the new covenant promises are better in administrative form in as much as the fulfillment is better than the promise. They're better in administrative form in as much as the son is better than the servant. In as much as Jesus is better than Moses. In as much as the heir himself bringing us to maturity is better than the guardians and managers watching over us while we're children. So third, third, the new covenant is better as the new creation is better than the old creation. The new creation is better than the old creation. Now you've heard this language um, already in Galatians 4 when I said in the fullness of time when Paul wrote that. Uh, but I want to look at it more specifically. Look at Hebrews 8, 7 again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. See, we're, we're looking for a second covenant. The Old Testament saints were looking for a future covenant. They were told by Jeremiah there was a future covenant coming, and Ezekiel, etc. Look at Hebrews 8.8. 8. For he find fault, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. There are these coming days. Declares Lord, when I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, I will reunify the people of God, if you will, in these coming days. Look at Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. In other words, I'm picking up this language because I want you to hear the eschatology. There were former days and latter days. When Christ, the promised seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, came into the world, he brought the new creation with him. He brought in the latter days. The people of God were divided and scattered in the old creation. Those were the former days. The people of God were subject to Satan, suffering, sin, and death in the old creation, in the former days. The people of God were a sinful mess in the old creation, constantly given to backsliding, rebellion, complaining, and covenant-breaking in the former days. Furthermore, the people of God were not a blessing to the nations in the old creation. The work of the Holy Spirit seemed to trickle into Israel, if you will. The Holy Spirit's power and work seemed to trickle into Israel, as B.B. Warfield says, like a, like a pent-up stream into the old creation. The people of God and the old creation had typical priests and prophets and kings. The people of God and the old creation had a typical tabernacle or temple. The people of God had typical sacrifices in the old creation. The people of God had a typical land, Palestine, in the old creation, but they were promised a coming restoration in the latter days. There was a spirit-anointed Messiah coming. He would save his people and bring in the kingdom of God. He would suffer for their sins. He would crush Satan, um, sin, and death. He would crush all their enemies. He would resurrect from the dead and bring in a new creation. He would reunite his people, Israel and Judah, bringing reconciliation. He would set up a new temple, a new heavens and a new earth. And the nations, the peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation would stream into the new temple and trust the Lord. You can see this in Isaiah 2, Isaiah 32, 15, Isaiah 41, 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53. And we can go on and on. You can see it in the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 2 and chapter 7. You can see this throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on all peoples. Joel chapter 2. He would no longer 
trickle into Israel like a pent-up stream, but the dam would break and he would flood the earth with the glorious good news of the gospel. The peoples would draw near to the Lord through him, and Jesus came as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. He came as the King, and he brought the kingdom of God with him. He suffered on the cross for the sins of his people. He atoned for their sins. He paid the penalty for them. He rose from the dead. He conquered Satan, sin, suffering, and death. He ascended to the true Holy of Holies and presented the sacrifice for, of himself. His atoning work being complete, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in the Holy of Holies. Now he sits on the throne as our priest king and ever intercedes for us. He is, if you will, now at work by the Holy Spirit, applying his saving work to us. That's why Peter calls Pentecost the latter days that Joel predicted. The new creation has begun as Christ poured out his spirit to apply his work as the reigning priest king. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now here comes the question. If the new creation is already here, why do I still struggle with sin? If the new creation is already here, why do I still suffer? If it's already here, why do I still die? If the new creation has come in Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, taking of his throne and pouring out his spirit, if it's come there, then why does the church still have folks who commit apostasy or who are excommunicated or who struggle with various moral weaknesses? Why aren't things way better among God's people now? Why do we seem an awful lot like Israel in the wilderness? It's true that Christ inaugurated the new creation, but we are still waiting for him to return to consummate that creation. Listen, I fear many of you hear these new covenant promises. You hear that they're enacted and you think heaven has come to earth. So you wonder why you're not experiencing all those heavenly blessings here on earth. Perhaps it would be better for us to say that we have been brought to heaven. Paul says we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Christ has ascended to heaven and we are united to him by the Holy Spirit through faith. Christ has passed through the heavens and anchored us there in him. So heaven is ours. We are citizens of another kingdom and yet we still live here. We still live here like pilgrims on the way. We still live here like those in the wilderness who have not quite reached the promised land yet. See, the new creation has been inaugurated, and it's a reality for us in the Spirit through faith. Uh, but we don't yet experience all the benefits of the new creation until Christ returns and sets up the new heavens and new earth and consummates it all. It will come when Jesus returns, and that's what we see in Revelation 21 expressly. Fourth, so the new covenant first is better as fulfillment's better than promise. Second, as the son is better than the servant. Third, um, it's, it's better as the new creation is better than the old creation. And fourth, the new covenant is better as the gospel is better than the law. The Mosaic covenant is often called the law covenant. 
and it was enacted under Levitical priests who could not perfect us. The new covenant is often called the gospel covenant, and it was enacted under Christ as priest who could perfect us. It's speaking really of the grace of God under the administration of the law versus the grace of God under the administration of the gospel. In the Mosaic covenant, in the old covenant, the law is foregrounded. It's, it's put up front. The emphasis in the Mosaic covenant is that we are unable to meet the terms of the law covenant. The law of Moses was written on tablets of stone. It's an external law that could not save anyone in and of itself. In and of itself, it can only condemn and bring the curse. In the gospel administration, the new covenant, Christ comes and meets the terms of the law for us. So if you look at Romans chapter 1, when Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and his holy scriptures concerning his son. There's a gospel concerning his son. But it was promised in the old covenant prophets. If you look at Romans chapter 8, we'll just turn there, and verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, Christ has come, and his Spirit has applied his law-keeping life to us, the law that we could not keep. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says this, verse 4, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. See, the, the new covenant, the gospel administration, is far more glorious because it isn't something that's merely external. Now, please don't misunderstand me. As a, an administration of the law, the Mosaic covenant was merely external. In and of itself, it could not save you. It, you could only be saved as Christ administered his grace in and through the types and shadows. But it was actually the new covenant in and of itself cut in Christ that saves you, where the Spirit writes the law on your heart. Christ kept the law's precepts and the law's penalties. He took the curse for us so that we might receive the blessing of God. So let me conclude with Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. You'll see that here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, why did Christ do this? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, here we return to the promises. In Christ, God is our God, and we are his people. In Christ and by the Spirit, we draw near to God. He has come. He has enacted the new covenant in his blood. Thus, it is better. The new covenant promises are better inasmuch as the new covenant promises are administered by Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to look to your Son, to see him as our glorious Savior, our Lord, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the one who has made a full atonement for sins, the one who has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and whoever intercedes for us, the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 and promised in all the covenants of promise throughout the Old Testament, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the one who is from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, the one to whom Moses' covenant pointed in its types and shadows of priests and sacrifices and tabernacles and law. Father, we, we pray that we would look to him, the fulfillment, the one who has come, the Son, who has brought in the new creation, the one who is himself ministering to us by a spirit through faith. We pray that we would trust him, ever look to him, and know how glorious it is to know him and to know you in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.